right, hello family. If you are a uh, guest or a curious skeptic, we're really glad that you're here. Hope you feel welcome. Um, and parents, you can take your children to class if you haven't done that already. Uh, guys, grab your Bibles, open them up uh, to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 18 is where we're going to pick it up uh, today. And of course, we are looking at the questions that Jesus asks people that encounter him. And today, Jesus is going to reveal something about himself through a question about fasting. With that said, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do people's disciples? Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but but new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Uh, We've come to worship you and to lift your name above every name. Your name is the one that endures, and you are wholly good. We thank you, God, for your word, that you're a speaking God, and that you've spoken things to us that are indestructible, things that uh, endure and last, and we could even build our life on them. They're so sturdy. And these are words that we can pass on to other people. So, Lord, would you give us ears to hear your word and hearts that want to take it in. We ask you to do this in the sacred name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the Pharisees are a group, a Jewish group that came out of the tragedy of the Maccabee revolt. Uh, The Pharisees loved the scriptures Uh, studied the scriptures. They were uh, all about calling Jews to forsake their uh, loose living, uh, forsake your sinful lifestyle, and return to obeying God's word. Not just reading it, but actually obeying it. Doesn't sound that bad, does it? Uh, They believed that as God's people purified themselves through obeying the word of God and separated themselves from the unrighteous people of the world, the wicked people of the world, that the Messiah would come for his people and that he would make everything right. He'd see, wow, you're without spot, without blemish, and I'm going to come. And so this is how they were going to make their nation great and prepare them for this. This was their plan. They were so serious about this that they actually added traditions of how to live out God's word. So they would read God's word that interpret it for people, and then for over 200 years, those interpretations and those traditions, they got kind of codified. They got like exalted to just as equal in authority as Scripture. And Bible nerds will remember that this is referred to as building a fence around the Torah building a fence around God's 
word. And the thinking went like this. In order to keep people from breaking God's law, because God's upset about all these people breaking his law, so to keep them from breaking God's law, you need to put more space between people and the law of God. Because if they keep that fence, there's no way they'll break this law. See the thinking? And so that was a protective fence that they put against the original law. Now to be clear, we read this here throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is not against obeying God's law. Okay? Jesus thinks obeying God's word is a really good thing. He's not a man of lawlessness. Uh, Jesus is very much against obeying the fence around the law. So I just, we need to nuance that, okay? One of the issues that got a fence was how to fast, because fasting is a form of worshiping God, right? God did command his people to fast. They were supposed to fast every year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Uh, additionally, God did call for an occasional fast as situations required it, fasting to, as an act of repentance for his people. Coming back to God. But the Pharisees went well beyond this. They fasted twice a week, every week. Mondays and Thursdays, to be specific. And it wasn't like, a, uh, like no food all day. It was like from sunup to sundown. So you get up, you eat a little bit, no food or anything. You know, drink your juice, your tea, whatever throughout the day, and then you break fast at night. Every Monday, every Thursday. And they were really influential because they were trying to obey the word of God. Surely these are serious people. about They're serious about bringing God's kingdom, right? And so people are, in this context, people are trying to figure out, who, what is this Jesus movement all about? Because he's starting to pick up some disciples. John's picking up disciples. Pharisees have had disciples for years and years. And now this Jesus thing is happening. Who is this guy? And they've dispatched some people to find out, okay, who are you? What are you about? Uh, the question is, why doesn't Jesus make his disciples, why doesn't he make his people conform to the traditions of fasting? Because the people that are really serious about God's kingdom and obeying him and want to see him rule, they're doing that. Why aren't they following that? Uh, is Jesus not serious about wanting his people to avoid sin? Is Jesus okay with people sinning? Uh, is, he, is he not serious about God's kingdom finally coming into the world? These are the questions that they're having. Uh, Mark wants us to know that Jesus is actually very serious about his kingdom coming to earth. In fact, Mark wants to let us know Jesus is so serious about bringing God's kingdom that he transforms the significance and the expression of fasting for his people, for his disciples. And that's what we're going to talk about today. He's going to uh, transform the significance and the expression of fasting. First of all, because Jesus has come, fasting now has new significance for Christians. Because Jesus has come, fasting now has new significance. It, it's, it is a new sign. It signifies something new for us. Let's go to the text right here in verse 19. And this is how he answers them. Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? There's, that, there's his question. We're trying to hit some of his questions in Mark. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But generally speaking, fasting in the Old Testament was an act of mourning. 
Did you know that? It was kind of a somber thing, uh, somber discipline. Uh, people fasted uh, during the death of a loved one. Okay? Um, they fasted as a visible sign of repentance for their sins, both uh, like as an individual or as the nation. Uh, fasting also signified that people were asking God to come save them from their enemies. Because why? The wages of sin is what? Death. So see how this this is all kind of like a somber thing. It's a repentance kind of a thing. It's saying this, I'm not eating food to demonstrate the fact that you are my true source of life, God. Not the food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's, That's what they're saying. I've forgotten this. I've cut myself off from life. Please come help us, God. Please bring salvation to us, God. And Jesus explains uh, why his disciples are not fasting at this particular moment. Why, they're, why is his disciples right now not participating in, in this? And he does it by using the analogy of a wedding party. And he, he refers to himself as the bridegroom of this wedding that's going to take place. A bridegroom that's about ready to get married. Which is interesting because Jesus never got married. Jesus gets this analogy, by the way, from the Old Testament. Did you know that? He doesn't just pull this out of thin air. He's pulling on the the law of God and the prophets. In the Old Testament, God referred to himself as a groom and his people as his bride that he's going to marry one day. They're going to be one. They're going to be unified one day. I'll give you just an example from the prophet Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man, so here's the simile, here's the metaphor. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What's interesting is in this particular encounter, Jesus is boldly calling himself the divine bridegroom. He's calling himself God. There are certain people in entire religions that say Jesus never referred to himself as God. He never called himself God. Yes, he did. This is twice at least. And, and by the way, he has sent his disciples out to invite people to the wedding party right now. That's what his disciples are doing and why they're not fasting. The invitation for you, and an invite for you, and an invite for you, and I don't care who you are, and I don't care where you've been, and I don't care what you look like, you're invited, you're invited, you're invited to the party. Here's the question, how are his disciples supposed to be sad at a wedding party? You guys have been to weddings, right? Imagine that, you get invited to the wedding, and you say, no, I'm not going to participate in eating of food and the drinking of the wine, and the dancing, and the revelry. I'm just going to sit here. Imagine that, and you got invited, right? Are you picturing this? How they're supposed to be sad at a wedding party. How rude, how inappropriate to expect his followers to weep, and to cry, and to not eat, to not drink, when the band's thumping tunes in the next room, and expensive china's being set out on a nice white tablecloth by the king's own servants, Right? That's not the appropriate response, right? 
That's not the appropriate response to be invited to a wedding celebration. This is what Jesus is saying. Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes' wedding went down as the most expensive wedding uh, in history at, at the time that they were married. Uh, upwards of $3 million. That was just the wedding ceremony. It was dubbed by the Church of Scientology as, quote, the wedding of the century. For good reason. They were married in a 15th century castle in Italy. Uh, their entire wedding party, grooms and bride's side, the entire wedding party wore clothes that were custom made by Giorgio Armani. So that's how you know you were part of the wedding. You got the appropriate clothes to get into the wedding. The guest list was only the most famous celebrities in film and sports and music. This, the guest list was A-listers only. They had a five-tiered cake, custom-made. They were personally serenaded by uh, Andrea Bocelli, and there was an extravagant fireworks celebration put an exclamation point on the entire event at the end, up against the Italian sky at night. Brooke Shields, who had been publicly criticized by Tom Cruise, was invited to the wedding party. She was quoted uh, after the wedding when she got back in an interview by saying, quote, when you get invited to a wedding like that, you go. <laughs> when you get invited to a wedding like that, you go. See, Jesus is not just inviting us to the wedding of the century, brothers and sisters. He is inviting us to the greatest wedding in all of history. This is what all weddings are pointing to. They're supposed to be little miniature reenactments of what's coming. And he's inviting us to the greatest wedding of all history, and he has come to bring sinners to God. Sinners to God. That's his guest list. D-listers, not A-listers. And it's only D-listers that get in. Isn't that just the opposite of the world? Wouldn't that make you happy? Wouldn't that make you maybe want to celebrate a little bit? Jesus has come to bring liars and adulterers, political zealots, incompetent parents, idolaters, judgmental religious folks into a banquet hall to dine with God himself at the head of the table forever. Like Brooke Shields said, when you get invited to that wedding party, you go and you rejoice. You attend and you rejoice. You participate. That's the appropriate response. Participating, not abstaining. I've got other things to do. I'll get to that next time. No. Feasting, not fasting at least not fasting according to the tradition of the Pharisees. 
As Christians, we do fast today, but Jesus has given it new significance for us. It's a sign, but it's, it's a different kind of sign now for us. It, it's, it's new wineskins that are holding the new wine of Jesus and his kingdom that has already broken into history and time and space. Fasting comes from a place of joy. Have you thought about that? Fasting comes from a place of joy. Not drudgery, not sorrow, but a place of joy. Why? Because it signals to the watching world that the Messiah has come. His kingdom has begun for all who have accepted the invitation. Jesus says in another place here, Matthew 6, 16, and when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, do not look gloomy. <laughs> right? He's telling us how to do it. Don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. <laughs> For they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They got their reward. Jesus clearly expects Christians to fast, but not in a way that draws attention to ourselves. Not to show others how devout we are or how uh, spiritual uh, we are, but we fast joyfully in a way that points people to the bridegroom, Jesus. We fast in a way that is joyful. Wash your face. Put on a smile, Christian, when you fast. That's what he says. Because you know something they don't know. Jesus came to add your name to the guest list of this historic celebration. Your name. Your name. Not somebody's name. Your name. You should smile. You should smile. Because of Jesus, we will be the recipients of the greatest pleasures and the deepest satisfactions that are possible. The food and the drink and the pleasures of this world, they're fine, but they cannot even compare. They don't even compare to the joy and pleasure of Christ. Fasting also reminds us, by the way, that since the bridegroom hasn't returned yet, our mission is to invite other people into his presence as well, into the party as well. Invitation for you and for you and for you. That's what we do. Periodic fasting reminds us of this joyful, happy reality. Why? Because we're forgetful people. I don't know if you've figured that out yet. We're really forgetful. And so periodic fasting reminds of this joyful, happy reality in a way that we can emphatically feel in our body and feel in our mind. It puts that in front and center because we live in a world where everything else is jammed front and center, right? Do you see the purpose of this? It's a tool. It's a great gift. Let me ask you, what was the last time you fasted? And not like to lose weight, okay? Like, when was the last time you fasted? And what was that experience like? I kind of just wonder out loud how things might change for you if you saw it from this perspective, from the Jesus perspective. It signifies gaining something wonderful and knowing something joyous is happening because the Messiah has come and he has inaugurated his kingdom. Secondly, because Jesus has come, fasting now takes a new expression for the Christian. Fasting takes a new expression for the Christian because of Jesus. 
So not only is fasting a declaration of joy, Jesus has transformed what it actually expresses. This is pretty neat. Fasting is a way for disciples of Jesus to express a deep longing to feast with God in the kingdom that he's bringing. Let me say it again. Fasting is a way for disciples of Jesus to express a deep longing to feast with God in the kingdom that he's bringing. Okay? Let's go to the text, Mark 2, 20. Jesus says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. So taken away means something forceful happened. He didn't just go away, he was taken away. Right? And then they will fast in that day. They can't fast now while the bridegroom's with them, but they're going to fast with them in that day. See? Mark wants his community who's reading this after the death and resurrection of Jesus to know something. Though Jesus is alive and though his spirit is uh, with the church and even though Christ's mission is being achieved uh, through his people, right now there will be times when we fast. For this simple fact, he is not with us physically. He's not with us physically. And Satan still does junk in the world, and sin still breaks things, and death still is rampant in the world. Though, though all those things that God has given us, they're wonderful gifts, and, 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 and there's wonderful supplements to his absence, they're truly a great and real comfort uh, to us, yes and amen, there's, there's just no substitute for Christ's full and direct presence among us in the new creation that he's making. Let's go back to the Jesus analogy uh, of the wedding party. It might help flesh this out a little bit. It's kind of like this. It's like the bridegroom has invited us to the greatest wedding celebration of history. He has bought us all tailor-made wedding clothes to wear so that we can get into the wedding. Uh, We smell the expensive food that's wafting down the hallway. There's a guy that's bringing around appetizers, and that's just a taste of what's coming. And they are... Great appetizers. Uh, We hear the band tuning up in the next room. They're sounding really good. Fireworks are all set up for the moment that the bride and the groom kiss. They declared one flesh. They are united. The best man's over there with a speech. He's ready to make. He's going over it a few times. The groom is ready. He's right down at the front of the altar with the pastor. The bride's almost ready to, to, to walk down the aisle. The doors of the church open. Everyone holds their breath that this bride is about to take her first step down the aisle toward the groom. And then the groom is violently and swiftly taken away by an angry mob. They suddenly interrupted the entire thing right before the marriage was consummated. And they left and we're all here. Are you feeling this? Are you picturing this? So, so in effect, we're left standing in our suits and in our dresses with our hands over our collective mouths. What just happened? What do we make of this? We have tasted the appetizers. We have experienced the joy of anticipation. We all had a smile on our face. It was a great uh, day up to this point. And that was all wonderful. But we want the full experience. We want the full experience of the wedding. 
We want to see the fireworks. We want to hear the music. We want to dance. We want to make merry with our brothers and sisters forever and ever and ever without end. That's why we came. That's what we want. And we're thankful for all the taste, but we didn't get dressed up for a taste and then go back to life. We got dressed up to participate in a celebration that will become our new normal life forever. We got dressed up to participate in a celebration that will become our new normal life forever and ever. That's why we came. That's why we got dressed up and said yes to the invitation. And so what I'm saying is that there is a deep longing within the heart of a true disciple of Jesus. Our souls ache, our souls long for the full and final celebration of Jesus across this universe. That's what we long for. We want his kingdom to come, not in part, not in three-fourths, but fully, totally, That's what we want. And no matter how many good appetizers that we taste in the world, no matter how many good gifts and common grace that we get to experience uh, in this world, we will not be satisfied with anything less than being in the direct presence of the Lord and everything being right. The disciple of Jesus has been ruined for anything else. Fasting in the Old Testament was an expression of mourning for something that was totally in the future. Totally in the future. That people never saw, they never tasted, except in the most dimness of shadows. Fasting since Jesus has come is expressing a longing for fulfillment. For fulfillment of a reality that we have powerfully tasted of. We we have powerfully experienced right now in Jesus. The new wine, Jesus and his kingdom, has to be put into new wineskins. That's a a new way of fasting. John Piper wrote a, a great book about this topic called A Hunger for God. And here's how he explains what fasting now expresses for a Christian. It's a form of expressing something. He says, quote, It is a real expression that we must have all that is possible to have. The newness of our fasting is this. It's intensity. It's intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. It is a way of saying from time to time that having more of the giver surpasses having the gifts. Do you get it, guys? Let me ask you a question if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus. Have you ever felt that way about Jesus? Listen, I'm not asking you if you live in a constant, like, euphoric state of adoration and devotion to your Savior. I'm not asking that question. I'm asking a different question. I am asking you if you've ever, at any point in your life, experienced that intensity of affection for Jesus. 
that Jesus is the most joyful, most significant, most wonderful thing in your life and that it truly bothers you that you can't fully experience all that he is right now. I ask the question because it's an important one. I ask it because cultivating, cultivating that kind of affection for Jesus, cultivating that kind of longing to experience him maximally is actually the solution for the sins that are ailing us right now. We are what we love, to put it another way. Cultivating intense longings, cultivating intense affection for Jesus actually tempers the intensity of all of our other longings and all of our other loves in this world. Because they all want to be most, and when he's most, they actually get put in their right love order. If you've encountered Jesus, then you have felt that desire at some point. And fasting periodically is actually a way of stirring up that kind of deep longing for Jesus through expressing it. It stirs up that longing how? By expressing that longing. It can't create it, but if it's there, it can stir it up by expressing it. We are expressing, I want to feast on you, Lord, more than anything else because you satisfy me like nothing else. Your love, O oh Lord, is better than life. Bring your kingdom fully in me. I want you. You can have all the world, but give me Jesus. Thirdly, we are able to feast only because Jesus endured the ultimate fast. We are able to feast, you and I, only because Jesus endured the ultimate fast. Mark connects this story with the one that came before it. And if you read the one that came before it, Jesus is in this scene eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners and some pretty wicked people, actually. And they're at a big feast. And that's not an accident that they're at a big party, a big feast. Jesus is feasting, and then he teaches about fasting with this wedding party analogy kind of squeezed in the middle. It's really interesting how Mark writes this out. So Mark is clearly linking these accounts to this teaching of Jesus. And here's the question, because this is a question that the Pharisees are asking in this group that's been dispatched to figure Jesus out. They're, they're asking, like, look, how is it that sinners get invited to God's banquet? How is that without God being unjust? Does God not care about sin? How is it that sinners get invited into the banquet of God to eat all of his expensive food, they get to drink his delicious wine? How is that possible? And God's still just and good. How did they get the proper wedding clothes to gain legitimate entrance into this epic wedding celebration? How did that happen? How are they not wedding crashers is what they're asking. Like, who invited them, and how do they get in and stay in here? That's what they're asking. 
The answer that Jesus gives is this, because the bridegroom paid the price tag. The bridegroom paid the, paid the price tag, that's how. He paid the price of admission. Let's bring, that, let's bring it home. Remember, I always say, we've got to apply this to us first before anyone out there, right? How do people like you and I get invited into the kingdom of God forever and ever? How do we get invited to this? How do people who, look, who take the name of the Lord in vain? People who lie and cheat and have murderous thoughts and love our country and love our family and love our own personal reputations more than we love God. How do we get the honor of entering into the joy of God forever instead of getting judged like we should? Because the bridegroom has paid the price tag. And that's the gospel of Jesus. Do you believe the gospel of Jesus? Our fasting is filled with joy because we know that Jesus fasted with deep mourning. We've tasted the kingdom only because Jesus graciously tasted exile for us. That's what was happening to him all the way up to the point of the cross. He was being excluded and exiled. We've tasted real inclusion only because Jesus graciously tasted infinite exclusion at the cross. Jesus, Jesus was the new patch of cloth that got torn away. Jesus was that new patch of cloth. He got torn away from the infinite love of God the Father. Why? So that you and I would never be torn away from the love of God the Father. No matter how much we struggle and fight, praise the name of Jesus. It was Jesus' body that was the skin that burst open. It was his blood that was spilt on the ground like wine. Why? So that we could not only taste, but fully feast one day at his wedding banquet forever and ever. He did that for you and me. Listen, we are able to feast with God only because Jesus endured the ultimate fast for us. Do you see your king? Don't you love him? Don't you love him? Don't you love him the most? And so what do we do? We express our love for him. We express our love. We express our longing through fasting from time to time. Love for our humble king is our motivation now. We say with our bodies. We say with our bodies. Like he said with his body. It's not to earn something from him. It's to say thank you for something. Do you understand what I'm saying? We say thank you with our body. We say, Jesus, I love you more than any gift you've ever given me. I love you the most, and I want all of you. I want all of you and not a gram less. I want it all. I love you. Thank you for loving me with everything you had in you. He loves you. Let's pray. Oh, King Jesus, who is like you?
oh, we love you so much. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your unwavering obedience to the Father in our place. I thank you for inviting us into this wedding celebration. And I pray, Lord, that this would go deep into our heart and where we have idols, Lord, melt those idols. Lord, help us maybe this very week um, by stirring up our affections for you the most. Lord, show us, are there things that we're eating and drinking and saying and reading and doing? Are there things that are blunting our affection for you? Show us, are there things that can stir up our affections for you? Because you really are lovely. You're the most lovely thing in our, wor- in our life. So we thank you for, for your word to us and for feeding us today. Please change us in Jesus' name, amen.